Thank you, Teresa. Children ages three through second grade, you're dismissed to Children's Church. We're in Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 to 14 today, and you're going to see how this strong wind uh, plays into this message today, as we saw there in, in Exodus with, with Moses. But <clears throat> in March of 2006, the Associated Press and Ipsos surveyed 1,003 adults concerning Americans' attitudes and behavior regarding impatience. Some of the findings included this. While waiting in line in an office or store, it takes an average of 17 minutes for most people to lose their patience. Is that faster or slower for you? <laughs> you don't have to answer that question today. <laughs> On the phone, it takes about nine minutes for most people to lose their patience. I don't know. I think it might be shorter than that for me, but especially when I hear an automated voice. Women lost their patience after waiting in line for about 18 minutes. For men, it was an average of 15. Guys, man, we're not very patient. People with lower income and less education are more patient than those with college education and high income. How do you, how do you like get rid of your education if you want to be more patient? I don't know how you do that, but um, <laughs> people who live in the suburbs are more patient than people who live in the city. And so... Those are the findings, um, some of the findings from this. You know, I'd like to think that I'm a pretty patient person. I'll take a long time to untangle a, a, a nest and a fishing line. I just will. I, it doesn't bother me too much <clears throat> unless I'm tired or frustrated. And, uh, and then it's snip, snip, and we're starting over. We just get rid of that part, and we'll, <laughs> we'll start fresh. I like to put architectural Legos together. And so they're pretty detailed, and so I'll be really patient, taking my time building that architectural Lego. If you want to see my collection that's down in my office, I'll show it to you. I love those. Putting puzzles together. There's one puzzle that I put together. It was some superheroes, and uh, it was, I think it was like a 2,000-piece puzzle. It was small pieces, and it took a long time. I was pretty patient putting it together, and then I just put the adhesive uh, stuff on the back and put it in a frame because I'm never putting that thing together again. Maybe it stretched my patience just a little bit. But there are other times when I'm not patient. I'm usually impatient when I'm frustrated or tired, like I said. There's been times where uh, I've just cut the line and started over. Um, and my family will tell you they know when I'm not patient because it usually ends in the same way as the fishing line. Whatever project I've been working on, I just scrap that and we're starting over. Because um, <laughs> I can't figure that out. Something's wrong. We can, uh, every one of us can probably recall a time when we were patient. Like, you were like, man, I was really patient in that situation. But we also can probably think of the times where we haven't been patient, right? And our families are the ones that were like, those are the times they remember. They don't remember the times where we were patient with them, right? They only remember the times where we were impatient with them. And we're like, oh, no. As we'll see today, the rain has stopped and the floodwaters go down, but it takes time. We see that Noah patiently waits and, and tests the earth to determine when the ground is dry. And even after the ground is dry, Noah waits for God's perfect timing to leave the ark. And we'll learn through this passage today that God's timing is perfect. In every situation, God's timing is perfect. And so as we think about that today, let's just pause and commit the message to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. <laughs> Thank you that you are patient with us. Thank you that your timing is perfect. <clears throat> you're never late. You're never early. You're right on time every time. 
And Lord, I pray today that as we look at this and we see this virtue of patience just displayed in, in Noah's life, I pray, Lord God, that we would take his example and apply it to our lives. Lord, help us to be patient people. Help us to wait upon you and your perfect timing. And so, Lord, we just commit this to you now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at remembers. We see that in verse 1. And then the second thing we'll see is restraints. That's verses 2 to 5. And then uh, finally, verses 6 to 14, we'll see renews. And so that's what God is doing. He is remembering, he's restraining, and he's renewing his creation. Look at verse 1 with me, if you would, in chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. And so what we see here, last week, Pastor Mark shared with us that the, in verse 24 of chapter 7 that the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. And then we see here in, in verse 1 that God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. Now, when we think about the word remember, we immediately associate it with recalling something that's been forgotten, right? Somebody says, do you remember when this happened? You're like, nope, I don't remember. And they said, well, here's the situation. They explain it to you. Oh, I remember. It's because we'd forgotten. Now, what we have to understand is that's not the case with God here. God wasn't like, <laughs> Noah, Noah wasn't like, hey, hey God, uh, do you remember me? Like, we're out here floating around 150 days. And God's like, oh, Oh, I forgot. No, that's not the, what it is with God. He hasn't forgotten Noah and the animals. He's remembering. And I like different commentaries kind of bring out different nuances of this word remember. Hamilton expresses it as God extending his saving mercy either from death or barrenness. She's like, I'm remembering you. I'm extending my saving mercy. Three other commentators Uh, talk about it being uh, keeping a covenant promise. God's remembering his covenant promise to Noah and his family. We see that in Genesis chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. This is the promise here, the covenant. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. There's the covenant. And he's saying, I'm remembering that covenant. The rain's done. The flood's over. And so God has kept his covenant promise to Noah, his family, and the animals. They have come through the storm and have survived. There are other Old Testament examples of God remembering his covenant promises. God fulfilled his promise to bring the Israelites out of Egypt and establish them in the promised land. We see that in the book of Exodus and Number. He remembered them. And in fact, that's what we see there. I mean, Those words are right there. God remembered the Israelites. God remembered Abraham when he brought Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah prior to their destruction in Genesis chapter 19, verse 29. Again, we see the exact words, God remembered Abraham. A little bit further down in Exodus chapter 32, oh, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 30, verse 22, God remembered Rachel and opened her womb so that she could bear children. And again, the same words are there, God remembered Rachel. God remembered Abraham, Isaac, and Israel when Moses interceded for an apostate Israel, as you see in Exodus 32, 13. And again, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is also Israel, by the way. When the Israelites were being disobedient, as we see in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 42 and 45. But I think the one that I like the most is how Gangle and Bramer explain God remembering 
And it says, having, they say, having care or concern for Noah and the animals. He has care and concern for them. That's why he brought them through this. That's why he put them on the ark. And so we see the first principle today is that God is concerned about and cares for his creation. God knew how long Noah and his family had been cooped up with all the animals. He hadn't forgotten his covenant with them, the promise he had made to them. The same is true for us as children, his children, as followers of Jesus Christ. God is concerned about us and he cares for us. He hasn't forgotten any of the promises he's made to us that we find in his word, the Bible. In the middle of the storm, quote-unquote storm, we may feel like God has forgotten his promises to us, but his timing is perfect. We can trust in his timing, his concern, his care for us. We see some promises of God. I just want to give seven to you today. And they all start with the, the letter P. It took me a while to get to number seven. I'll explain that when we get to that one. But to find a P word for that one. First one is his presence. He promises us his presence. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, which is then quoted by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 5 and 6. He promises to never leave us or forsake us. That's his presence with us. He says, I'm going to be right there with you in the midst of it. And he keeps that promise all the time. The second promise that he gives to us is his provision. He promises to give us a hope and a future. Jeremiah 29, 11, he says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. He promises provision for us. Another promise is his power. We see it in Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? That's his power. We have the same power that lives in us that lived in Christ Jesus. We see also that he promises to hear our prayers from John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. So that's the, the fourth one is prayer. He promises to fight for us. We see that in Exodus 14, 14. So we see his protection. He promises that protection. This next one is pretty easy. You'll understand the P word because it's part of the, the sentence. From John 14, 27, he promises to give us peace. Aren't you glad? In the midst of the storm in the midst of heartache, in the midst of loss, he promises to give us peace. And then finally, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, he promises to always love us. Here was the one I had. I was like, oh no, I can't do all these P's and then say love at the very end, but it's passion. He promises his passion, his love for us. And so where are you struggling to trust in God's concern and care for you? What storm are you going through right now? What promise from God do you need to claim today? Do you need to claim his presence, his provision, his power, his prayers, his protection, his peace, or his passion? And that's our first next step. It's on the back of your communication card, and that's claim God's promise of his, and then fill in that blank or circle one. Out of his concern and care for knowing the animals, and in his perfect timing, God sent a wind over the earth. Now, God sent this wind. He, we realized that this wind was part of God's plan to cause the waters to recede. And this is perhaps <clears throat> talking about evaporation. Um, and in verses 2 to 5, we'll talk more about some other potential places where all this water went. And so, but part of it was this evaporation. God's power is revealed through the wind. Here, the wind is used to dry up the flood waters. But as... Um, 
You're going to see, uh, Teresa read some of these verses this morning, but in Exodus chapter 10, verses 13 and 19, we see this. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow across the, the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts, and the Lord changed the wind. This is verse 19 then. And the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt. How many of you are wishing that would happen? We need a really strong west wind right now, right? If you go out right now, boy, it is. At nighttime, you can hear it. It's just almost deafening, all the locusts, right? Like, Lord, send the west wind. Strong, all night and all day. Get rid of these things. Once they're gone this year, we'll just have to wait 17 more years and they'll be back. Exodus chapter 14, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on the right and on their left. Numbers chapter 11, verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It brought them down all around the camp and about three feet above the ground as far as a day's walk in any direction. The Israelites were grumbling about wanting meat, not just manna, right? Not just this bread from heaven. They wanted meat, and God provided. Think about that for a minute. Three feet high, as far as a day's walk in every direction. That's a lot of quail. <laughs> That's God's provision. He's using this wind to accomplish this. And so we can and should rejoice in God's omnipotent power displayed through nature. We also see his omnipotent power displayed through, once again, restraining the waters. Look at verses 2 to 5. This is what God's word says. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of, of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month, and on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. <clears throat> so we see God's omnipotent power just restraining the waters again. This leads us to principle two. God's sovereign power restrains his creation. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, we talked about how God removed the boundaries, the restraints from the springs of the great deep and the skies above. And the waters contained there were allowed to rise and fall at will. That brought the flood. It was just gushing up out of the ground. It was coming down from up above. God once again establishes the boundaries that he formed at creation for the oceans, the seas, and the great deep and the sky. God closed the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens. God caused the rain to stop falling from the sky. Now, I remember as a child going to Harvey Cedars Bible Conference every summer with other pastors' families, and we would vacation there, and uh, we would spend the afternoons at the beach building sandcastles, digging holes to China, and running away from the waves. Now, most waves would come up on the beach a certain distance every time, and it was easy to run away from those because you knew how far you had to run up the beach, right, to get away from it. But every once in a while, there would be a bigger wave that broke on the, and you would run to that spot where you knew you'd be safe, and all of a sudden, you're not safe anymore, right? And it rushes over your feet and over your legs, and you squeal, and you run further up to the beach. Now, with all of that, even with those random larger waves that came, I never worried about the fact that the water was just going to come out of its boundaries, go all the way up the beach, go inland, and start flooding. I never worried about that. I would just giggle and scream every once in a while when that bigger wave would come. But I knew that there was a boundary that God had created for the ocean. And we see him reestablishing 
and restraining those waters once again. That's God's sovereign power restraining his creation. And so we just need to worship him for that. That's our second next step today, is to worship the Lord for his restraining power displayed in creation. I, sometimes we just take it for granted, don't we? That, that God is doing all these incredible things. He's holding this world and allowing it to spin on its axis just the right way at a certain distance from the sun with certain plants in between us and the sun and beyond us. He holds it all in place. I believe that several things happened that caused the water to recede. Obviously, the wind was causing some of the water to evaporate and return to the sky. I also believe that the waters were returning to the great deep, either to the oceans and seas or even underground. And the water receded steadily, but it was still on the earth after 150 days. So five months after the flood began, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. Remember, I challenged you to keep an eye out for the next time we see the 17th day. Here it is. On the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark rested. On the 17th day, that's um, resting. On the 17th day of the second month is when the flood began. We saw that in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. So that's a five-month period. Now, we would miss this little golden nugget if we didn't look at the original Hebrew language here. And I think this is fascinating. I love this kind of stuff. The Hebrew word for rested is nuach. And if you look at it spelled out, transliterated, it almost looks like Noah. And it's the verb form which Noah's name comes from, nuach. So Noah's name literally means rest. And I'm reminded of what Noah's father said about him in Genesis chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Listen to God's word. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us, or a lot of other translations say, Give us rest or relief in our labors and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. When did God curse the ground? With Adam because of sin. And it's like, Noah's going to give us rest from that ground that was cursed. God, what? He recreated the earth after the flood. I think that's pretty cool. I mean, this rested and Noah, and Noah's naming rested, and he's accomplishing just what his father said about him. And these mountains of Ararat, it's just a range, a mountain range in modern-day Turkey. You're going to see a map pop up here. And, um, so the yellow circle that just appeared, northeastern Turkey, modern-day Turkey, that's where the mountain range of Ararat is. Um, there's two peaks there. One's, I think, 11,000 feet. The other one's 17,000 feet. Most people believe that it rested on the 17,000-foot um, one. But here's the two mountain ranges. You'll see a picture uh, of what it looks like uh, today there in uh, Turkey. And so, again, you see the two uh, peaks. Um, no, they haven't ever found the ark. People are still looking for it, but good luck. I just... You know, Thursday night, we were talking about this at uh, discipleship, and, you know, we just came to the conclusion that the reason that it, we haven't been able to find it is because guess what we would worship? The ark. We'd, uh, we'd worship the, we would, we would all go over there in droves, right? We would, we got to go see the ark. The ark's right there. We can, we can see it, what, here in Kentucky, can't we? Well, not, not the real one, but the ark adventure, or what is it called? Ark experience. I don't remember. Encounter, Ark Encounter, that's what it is. We can see it just here in Kentucky or wherever. But um, yeah, we would begin to worship those things. We also talked about the fact that the reason they probably have never found the chalice that Jesus used at the Last Supper is because what would we worship? The chalice. 
A little more worship Christ. It's like, I think God just removed the Ark of the Covenant. We've never found it. Why? We would worship it. That's just who we are in our humanity. And so I'm glad that we've never found the Ark, Noah's Ark. Because uh, again, we want to be worshiping God. So the waters continue to recede. God is a God of order. So we see parallel time periods in this narrative. Matthew uh, points it out this way. The ark at last comes to rest on the seventh day, 17th day of the seventh month, giving a five-month period from first rains, chapter 7, verse 11, to the ark's grounding. The same five-month period extends from the first sighting of the mountains, chapter 8, verse 5, to the completely dried earth in verse 14. So God's a God of orders, like 150 days, 150 days, right? We're going to see that order once again with 40 days in just a little bit. And so the waters continue to recede, and during the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains were visible. And this is just a reminder that God's timing's perfect. He's doing this in just the right time. He knew exactly how long he needed Noah and the animals to be in the ark. And God has remembered Noah and the animals, and he's restrained the waters once again, and now we see him renewing the earth. And this is verses uh, 6 to 14. Look at those verses with me, if you would. After 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground, but the dove could find no place to set its feet because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him, uh, in the evening, there was there what there in its beak. I can read, uh, was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's six hundred and first year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the twenty seventh day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. There is all kinds of cool stuff in here. <laughs> I just love it. So anyhow, Noah waited 40 days after the top of the mountains became visible before he started using birds to test the earth's readiness or the condition of the earth. He, because of the specific birds he's going to use, he knows how far the water's gone down. We'll talk about that in just a minute. We see God's order once again as he executes his perfect timing. Kyle and Dillich say, the 40 days correspond to the 40 days during which the rain fell and the waters rose. And Noah might assume that they would require the same time to recede as to rise. So Noah opens this window. It's not to be confused with the door on the side of the ark that was uh, used to load all the animals and all the supplies and all the people that God then closes. This would have been a hatch either on the ark's roof or uh, on the side uh, close to the top. And he first sends out this raven. Now, Noah sends out this raven after the first, uh, first after waiting 40 days. And there's some significance to the sending out of the raven. It's a larger and stronger bird, so it's going to be able to remain in flight longer, which is important because there's still a lot of water on the earth. It would also uh, feed on carrion, and that's a fancy word for dead things, or plants. And so um, it, it could land on dead things. It wasn't afraid because it was an unclean animal or bird. 
But I like what Matthew says. The foremost significance of the raven is its symbolic value as an unclean bird, unfit for consumption. According to rabbinic tradition, the raven was released first as expendable since it was neither good for food nor sacrifice. So Noah's like, ah, it's okay. We're going to send out this poor unclean bird. Let him fly around for a while and we'll see what happens. You know, and if he dies, well, he dies. You know, it's like not a big deal. So he sends out this uh, raven. And we see that the raven never returns to the ark because it doesn't, find, uh, doesn't mind landing on areas that are unclean. And then most scholars seem to agree that while it's not stated here, because it's stated two other times in the passage, that Noah waited seven days to send out the first dove after sending out the raven. And so the dove was considered a clean animal and good for sacrifice. And it was a low-flying, valley-dwelling bird... So Noah is sending it out to determine how far the water has receded. So you know they're up on the top of this mountain. They can now see the top of the other peak, perhaps. They're in the, the range, the, mount, the Ararat mountain range. But doves are like valley birds. He wants to know where, how far down has the water gone. <clears throat> I need to see if it's all the way down to the valley. And so a dove will only settle upon such places and objects as are dry and clean. That's Kion Dillage. So the first flight, Noah sends the dove out, but it returns to him because it can't find a place to land in the valley. The water hasn't receded that far. There weren't any dry or clean places available yet. So Noah reaches out his hand and brings the dove back in. He waits seven more days. And then he sends the dove out again. It didn't return until evening, so it must have been able to fly around for a little bit and find a place to land, perhaps on an olive tree or branch. He plucks that leaf and brings it back in his beak. And it's proof that the new life was springing up on the earth, but there was still water on the ground. The reason we understand that is because an olive tree will produce leaves even underwater. So some of the branches will come up and be above water, but the root system can be underwater and still produce leaves. And if the water had been completely dried up, then the dove would have not returned, but it did. And so then he waits another seven days, and he sends the dove out a third time. This time the dove did not return it had found a clean and dry place to nest. And so what we see next are two time frames to help us know how long the floodwaters had remained on the earth. The first one is found in verse 13. The first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year. Verse 13 is Noah's perspective. And we'll see whose perspective verse 14 is in just a moment. The verb used here for dried up or dry means to be free of moisture, but not completely dry. The New Living Translation translates this verse with, the, with that meaning in mind. <clears throat> Noah was now 601 years old. On the first day of the new year, ten and a half months after the flood began, the floodwaters had almost dried up from the earth. Noah lifted back the covering of the boat and saw that the surface of the ground was drying. <clears throat> Noah is patiently waiting for God's perfect timing. And again, the Hebrew word here just means that it, there's not a lot of moisture in the ground, but there's still some there. Then the second time frame we see in verse 14 is the 27th day of the second month of Noah's 601st year. Verse 14 is from the narrator's perspective. So Moses, who's writing uh, the Pentateuch, you know, he's, he's saying, hey, this is what happened. This is what took place. The verb used here for dried up <clears throat> or dry means the complete absence of water. So there's the two different things in, in the time frame that it took. So from the first day of the first month until the 27th day of the second month, which is another 57 days, the waters were completely gone from the earth. 
And so when we compare time frame given for when the flood begins and when it ends, there's an interesting point that emerges. Hamilton points it out. The flood begins, chapter 7, verse 11, on the 17th day of the second month of the 600th year of Noah. The flood has gone, chapter 8, verse 14, on the 27th day, second month, 601st year of Noah. Here's what Hamilton says. The flood lasted 12 months and 11 days, the exact period required to equate the year uh, of 12 lunar months, 354 days, with the solar year of 365 days. Isn't that cool? That's, (laughs) That's God's perfect timing. The flood lasted one solar year. And there it is. Noah was patient through the many months after the rain and floodwaters had stopped. He was waiting for God's perfect timing, which we'll see next week. <laughs> We're not going to talk him getting off the ark yet. He doesn't get off the ark today, sorry. Let's come back next week. Here's the third principle today. God's timing is perfect. Because Noah was a righteous and blameless man that we learned about uh, several weeks ago, he was content to wait on God's perfect timing. You know, the old saying is true, patience is a virtue. We see this incredible character of Noah to just patiently wait on God's timing. I, I just, I'm amazed by that. I think I wouldn't have been that patient. Like, as soon as, like, the, the bird doesn't come back, I'm out. You know, like, busting down the side door. Let's go. But he's patiently waiting for God's timing, God's direction. <clears throat> Perhaps you're struggling today to patiently wait for God's perfect timing. You know, it's difficult to patiently wait when you're dealing with chronic pain, when you're ready to graduate from high school or college and get out on your own, when you're waiting to be married and you're having a hard time finding a godly man or woman, when you're not sure if you should remain in your current position or job, when you're uncertain about whether or not you should change careers, when your debt load seems overwhelming and you're completely stressed out, when you've been praying for that loved one to come to Jesus for salvation and you're wondering when is it going to happen, when you're waiting for that relationship to be restored, and on and on the list could go, right? It's just hard to be patient when we're waiting on those things. And through every difficulty that we face, we can trust that God's timing is perfect. He's never early and he's never late. He's perfectly on time. And that leads us to our third next step today, and that's to patiently wait for God's perfect timing for the thing I'm struggling with today. Maybe that's right where you're at, and you're like, that's the, that's the step I need to take today. I haven't been patient. Most of us pray this prayer, right? God, give me patience and give it to me now. <laughs> yeah, would you agree with that? Yeah, that's the prayer I'm praying. <laughs> Maybe we need to say, God, give me patience, and I'm waiting on your perfect timing. Which one of God's promises do you need to claim today? If we're just reviewing now, his presence, provision, power, prayers, protection, peace, or passion. Are you ready to worship the Lord for his restraining power displayed in creation? And do you need to exercise patience for God's perfect timing concerning an issue or struggle? You know, we can help each other with all of these areas by doing these things, by reminding one another of God's promises found in his word, by worshiping together as we recognize God's power at work in our lives, by holding each other accountable to patiently wait for God's perfect timing. As I close today, I want to read this illustration to you from former pro football star and coach Tony Dungy. He tells the following story about his father's Christian character. My dad was usually a quiet, thoughtful man, a scientist at heart and by training. 
Wilbur Dungy loved to be outside, enjoying the scenery. Fishing allowed him time to contemplate, to listen, and to marvel at God's creation. My dad used fishing to teach his children to appreciate the everyday wonders of the world God created. The sandy shoreline, the dark pine forest, the shimmering water, and the abundant wildlife. The lessons were always memorable, whether we caught a lot of fish or not. Although we fished countless times together throughout our lives, one particular day stands out in my mind. It was a summer day in 1965. Summers in Michigan are beautiful with comfortable temperatures and clear blue skies. I was nine years old and my brother was five. My dad had taken us fishing at one of the many small lakes around Jackson. On that day, my dad was teaching my brother and I um, how to cast. We were both working on it, mostly in silence, until my dad's voice finally broke a period of stillness. Hey, uh, Lyndon, don't move for a minute, please. I looked back and watched my dad move his hand towards his face. Calm and deliberate, he continued to speak. Now, Lyndon, always make sure that you know, that you know not only where your pole is when you're starting to cast at this point. I realized my dad was working my brother's hook out of his own ear. But also make sure that you know where everyone else is around you. I learned something about proper casting that day, but I also learned something about patience. Years later, when I got hooked myself in my hand, I realized how much it hurts. Remembering my dad's patience that day when Lyndon's hook was caught in his ear, I finally understood the importance of staying calm and communicating clearly. <laughs> I read that illustration, and I thought my brother and I and his best friend in Shippensburg, we would ride our bikes out to what we called Syox Pond. It was a farmer's pond, and we would fish there. And this was probably, I don't know, it was getting cold out, so it was probably coming up on fall. And uh, I was on another part of the pond, and uh, my brother Fred and, and Rich uh, were together at a different part of the pond. And next thing you know, I hear Rich say, hey, hold on, hold on, hold on. And I turned to look and, and see that my brother had hooked his uh, stocking hat, you know, his bogging hat, and was getting ready to just, you know, and it was going to be out in the middle of the pond. And so, um, yeah, I read that and remembered that. And then I remembered another story. Uh, my best friend in California, we were fishing together at a pond, and, and he hooked his finger. And uh, the barb and everything were still under the skin. And so we went to the, he said, can you take me to the hospital? Yeah. And so they pushed the hook all the way through, and, and, um, then they realized they didn't have anything to cut that hook with to pull it back out, so they called maintenance and asked them to bring some wire cutters. And I thought, all I thought was infection, infection, infection. That's, that's what was going through my mind, thinking to myself, I'm glad it's not me. <laughs> but they got it out of his thumb. But, uh, but yeah, maybe you have a story like that too where you've hooked yourself fishing or hooked a buddy. But um, I'm not sure that I would have been this patient with my kids <laughs> as Wilbur was, but... It's a virtue, and we just have to understand that God's timing is perfect, and we just need to wait upon him for that, and, and that takes patience. And so I trust that you're encouraged today through Noah and uh, through this message from God's word. So as we just contemplate that today, and as the worship team comes, would you just bow your heads with me? Lord, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that your timing is perfect, and Lord, uh, we're impatient people. <clears throat> we confess that before you today. We just ask, Lord, that you would help us to be patient, 
Help us to uh, develop that virtue in our own lives so that we don't run ahead of you, but that we are in step with you. And so, Lord, um, just work by your Holy Spirit as we worship you. We ask this in Jesus' name.